Father, we, we acknowledge that all power, all glory is yours. We trust in your name. And we trust in your word. Father, we know it is true. We know it has the power to change our hearts through your spirit. So we ask now that you'd open our eyes to see your truth and that it would affect us, that it would change us for your glory. We pray this now through Christ's name. Amen. Don't judge me is something we regularly hear said or even just see communicated in various nonverbal ways. Most people today hate the idea of being judged. Yet those same people seem to have no problem judging others and even criticizing them for being so judgmental. And at the very same time our world resists the idea of judgment, it is obsessed with justice which seems right now at least to be the most prominent cry of the human heart. This strong pursuit of justice is admirable in many ways, but there seems to be a pretty significant problem. What one person thinks is just in a particular situation is totally different than what another person thinks is just. What one court decides to be just is overruled by another court, which decide that decision wasn't so just after all. It seems like the more we pursue social, racial, economic, political, legal, environmental, and whatever other kinds of justice there is, the more unjust our world becomes. In his speech, Where Do We Go From Here?, Martin Luther King Jr. said that, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Now, we can certainly debate whether or not the bend today is closer or further away from God's standard of justice than it was in 1967. But the day is coming when the universe won't just bend towards justice, it will experience justice perfectly through an awesome encounter with the infinitely wise and righteous judge. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. As we gain the context here of our passage this morning, we should recognize that chapter 24 and chapter 25 of Matthew fit together. And, and they're united with the theme of Christ's return. At the beginning of chapter 24, Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples ask him privately, what sign would signal the coming, his coming, at the end of the age? So Jesus then proceeds to talk to them about the last days. And he makes it clear that the end would come just not immediately. It would only come after a significant amount of time and a significant amount of trouble. We know that Jesus often spoke in parables. And in these two chapters, which are known as the Olivet Discourse, 
he tells six of them. All of which, in one way or another, make the point that since no one, except the Father, knows the exact hour of his return, we've got to be ready at all times. And these parables give us a picture then of what it looks like to live with an expectant watchfulness. Well, the final section of this, beginning at verse 31 of chapter 25, it's not a parable. But in it we see that those waiting expectantly for Christ's return are actively serving others. And we also see a prophetic vision of what will happen when Jesus returns. Please follow along as I read, starting in verse 31 of chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. As we consider what will happen when Jesus comes, we see first here the king's glorious return in verse 31. A couple different times previously in Matthew's gospel, Jesus had said that the Son of Man would be coming back. And even though here in this verse, he doesn't explicitly say, Jesus doesn't explicitly say that he is the Son of Man, that is his favorite designation. It's his favorite self-designation. 
indicating the true meaning of his ministry and identity. Jesus' disciples asked him at the beginning of this discourse, in chapter 24, verse 3, what will be the sign of your coming? And here Jesus says, the Son of Man will come in his heavenly glory. So Jesus is saying in this, I am the Son of Man. Jesus is the fulfillment of Daniel 7, 13 through 14, which reads, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is what we're seeing fulfilled here. After his death, burial, burial and resurrection, which will actually all happen within just a matter of days after Jesus speaks these words, Jesus ascended into heaven where he is ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand. And he will return in all his glory. He will sit on his glorious throne as king. All divine authority is mediated through him. And since Jesus is king, he is also judge. For as he said in John 5, the Father has given him all judgment and authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is the sovereign king and the rightful judge. And when he returns, we read here, all the nations or all the people, both Jew and Gentile, will stand before him. So next then, we see the king's exclusive separation. Verse 32 and verse 33. All the nations are gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Well, in first century Palestine, sheep and goats would often intermingle during the day. And they were harder to, to tell the difference between than the sheep and goats that we're familiar with. So, so at nighttime, they would have to be separated. There were lots of reasons for that, but one of them was that the, the sheep could tolerate the cooler air, but, but the goats had to be clumped together. They had to be herded together to stay warm. Well, up to this moment in human history, people everywhere have lived all mixed together. But here we see King Jesus dividing everyone up into two groups. The sheep on the right, which in Scripture was always a place of honor, and the goats on the left. 
we realize that Jesus only sees sheep and goats. That's all he sees. There are no variations or mutations between the two, creating a third group. No. There are only two groups of people. Everyone is either a sheep or a goat. After his separation, the king makes an authoritative pronouncement, starting with the destiny of the sheep. Notice in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He says the inheritance of the kingdom is yours. They are to receive what they've been promised because they're blessed by the king's father, which certainly assumes that they have a relationship with him. And this inheritance isn't some kind of afterthought. It was prepared for them since the foundation of the world. Just as they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1. This glorious inheritance of the consummated kingdom was the Father's plan for them from the very beginning. The king proceeds to pronounce the deeds of the sheep, starting in verse 35. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus tells the sheep what they had done to care for him. And the sheep are surprised. When did we do these things for you? Jesus says, you did them to me when you did it to the least of these, my brothers. That's when. Well, who are the least of these? That's a really important question to answer if we are to rightly understand what Jesus means here. It is often assumed that they are societies poor and downtrodden, and that by way of implication, Jesus would have us support any program, whether it's church, government, or something else, any program that aims to help hurting people. Now, we should certainly show care and compassion to all humanity as those created in God's image. We think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's the point Jesus makes there. In Galatians 6.10, Paul writes, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, 
especially to those who are of the household of faith. And Jesus even taught that we should show love to our enemies. But that is not what Jesus is referring to here. The least of these is limited to believers who are in need for the following reasons. First, you notice how Jesus qualifies or defines them in verse 40? He says, the least of these, my brothers. Well, Jesus is not asking us to care only for his brother James. So it would seem that he must be speaking of his spiritual family, which includes all believers. As Jesus said in Mark 3.35, whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, my mother. In all throughout the New Testament, it's not the poor in general, but the body of Christ or the church that represents Christ on earth. Also, the word least in the Greek is the superlative from the Greek word meaning little ones. And that word always refers to disciple in Matthew's gospel. And then as we continue to to see this and gain a sense of what Jesus meant by this, Matthew chapter 10, in that chapter, Jesus sent out his disciples, if you remember, to minister throughout the towns of Israel. They weren't supposed to take a bag or a staff, and they were to look for a worthy house that would welcome them in. Their success would depend on the kindness of others. And the followers of Christ were to care for these traveling ministers, no matter the cost. And in showing love to them, they were showing love to Jesus. As Jesus told the disciples, whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, there's that phrase, little ones, disciples, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So then understood rightly in its context, I agree with DeYoung who said that the least of these refers specifically to itinerant Christian teachers, dependence on other Christians for hospitality and support. This is a, it's a really beautiful statement It's a beautiful statement of Jesus' concern for the weak and for for the vulnerable. And isn't it striking how strongly Jesus identifies with his disciples? He counts the good deeds performed for his followers as applying directly to him. There's a really clear example of this in the story of Saul. 
So, so the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, before he was Paul, he was Saul. His name was Saul. And he went around persecuting, killing Christians. So he's on the road to Damascus. And if you remember the story there, he met Christ on the road. He was blinded by a bright light. He was knocked to the ground and he heard a voice that said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul responded, who are you, Lord? We don't know what was going on in his mind, but he very likely had the thought, what on earth are you talking about? I'm not persecuting you. He just said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus replied, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. So, so, so closely is Jesus bound to his followers that whatever they experience, he experiences. Whatever is done to them is done to him. So in caring for those in need, the righteous discover that their acts of compassion for the needy are the same as if done for Jesus himself. Our world today is very different, isn't it? We don't have messengers of Christ in need of food, water, or clothing stopping by our front door asking to crash for the night. Perhaps the closest parallel for us would be missionaries engaged in the gospel ministry who are dependent on the support of their brothers and sisters in Christ. So, as we become aware of legitimate needs that missionaries have, we should continue to do what we can to help meet them. And as a church, we should continue to look for ways to increase our support of Christ's messengers who are dependent upon other people. And whether missionaries or not, all of Jesus' brothers, all of Christ's disciples are charged with spreading the gospel. And all around the world, to one degree or another, they do so in the face of hunger, thirst, illness, and even imprisonment. And where they're in need, we have a particular responsibility to help. Now, how to effectively help Christians suffering around the world who we don't even know certainly is challenging. And it's not even always possible. But we should have a heart that wants to meet their need because we share Christ. It's certainly far easier to help our fellow church members who are here, who we know well, which is why our church has a deacon's fund where we can designate giving that can be used to help our members who are in need. 
So I think this is a really good place to ask ourselves. Do I have a giving spirit towards missionaries and other Christians? When you are made aware of a need that another brother or sister has, do you do what you can to help? I think of this, Christian. As we serve one another, we're ultimately serving Jesus. It's so important that we see the reflection of Christ in our brothers and sisters and understand that hidden in all of his followers is Jesus himself. Oh, that ought to both motivate us and encourage us. King Jesus now pronounces the destiny of the goats. Verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The sheep are blessed, the goats are cursed. The sheep are ushered into the Father's presence, the goats are banished from the King's presence. The sheep are invited into the kingdom prepared for them since the beginning. The goats are sentenced to the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels or all spiritual beings in opposition to God. I mean, the the destiny of the sheep and the goats could not be any more different. And their deeds were different too. As the king pronounces, verses 42 through 45, everything that the sheep did, the goats did not do. They refused to show compassion to King Jesus through helping the least of the brothers. There was no identifying with Christ, no living for his mission, no living for his kingdom. Now, I I think it'd be pretty easy up to this point, reading Jesus' words here, it'd be pretty easy to come away from these pronouncements and conclude that the only difference between the sheep and the goats is what they did and didn't do. But that's not the case. And it would be also easy, I think, to, to conclude that the reason that the sheep inherit the kingdom is because they serve the king's brothers. And the reason the goats are cast into hell is because they did not. But that is not the case either. So so the difference here isn't merely in outward characteristics or actions. Sheep and goats have different DNA. They're different species. Now there's no way to miss the fact that the righteous will be separated from the unrighteous based on the presence of real love for others. As Brian read earlier in Revelation 20, all will be judged according to their deeds. However, the sacrificial love we see here in the sheep is not the cause 
of a righteous new nature. Rather, it is the inevitable fruit of receiving a new nature. As one has said well, sacrificial love is the real wool that distinguishes the sheep from the goats. Having real wool does not make you a sheep, but being a sheep causes you to have real wool. Thus, when Christ separates the sheep and the goats, he's separating them based on inevitable outcomes. We can recognize true conversion by the presence of sacrificial love. That's what Jesus was saying in John 13 when he said, The world will know you, they'll know you're my disciple, by your love for one another. However, it's really, really, really important that we not conclude our sacrificial love is what causes our conversion, as if it can somehow make a genuine disciple of Jesus. Loving others is to new birth as real wool is to being a sheep. Peter expresses this reality when he commands believers in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he commands them to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Because. Love one another because they have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So, so we're called to love others because we've been born again, not in order to be born again. Sacrificial love is the inevitable fruit of an imperishable seed. As one author summarized so well, instead of the stench of sin's death, sacrificial love is the aroma of the resurrected new creation. Instead of the slop-stained rags of the rebel son, sacrificial love is the beautifully fitting robe of the reinstated prodigal. Instead of the superficial niceties of the unrighteous goats, sacrificial love is the real and lasting wool of real sheep. And instead of the fading flowers that grow from Babylon's rotten roots, Sacrificial love is the beautiful, eternal, and inevitable fruit of an imperishable seed. So I wonder this morning, have you been seeking to serve and love others in hopes that doing so will earn you favor and blessing from God? Well, as good and as noble as your works may be, Scripture says that God is not impressed. Even your best deeds are reprehensible to him because you're a sinner. You can only receive the blessing of the Father through the work of another. As Paul wrote in Romans 4, 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted 
as righteousness. You see, you will never become a sheep by showing love to others in need. The only way to be righteous and enter God's kingdom on Judgment Day is to believe in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for your sin through his death on the cross. For all who claim to be Christians, Jesus couldn't be any clearer here. The way we love one another matters. The way we love one another really, really matters. It matters because it makes us distinct. It matters because this kind of love is how the shepherd distinguishes the sheep from the goats. It matters because entrance into the Father's kingdom is at stake. This should serve as a sobering warning to all of us. As one author noted, if you claim to believe in Jesus and yet deny others access to your home, give the cold shoulder to a needy brother or sister in Christ, or look away from the physical needs of those in desperate straits, you're living a lie. So we must examine our wool to make sure that it is truly that of a sheep. Finally, we see the king's eternal judgments in verse 46. He says, And these, referring to the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We note that this judgment is exclusive. It's either one or the other. There's no middle ground. It's comprehensive. It includes everyone. And it's eternal. Its consequences are forever. It's probably not anything new to you for me to suggest that this matter of judgments in hell can make us all feel pretty uncomfortable. I, I suspect you know that, right? It, it grates against our modern sensibilities in so many ways. Our culture is obsessed with equality. And we don't like any sort of suggestion of exclusion. How could a loving God send people to hell? It's a really hard question. It's a really hard question. One Christian author recently wrote, This is the most difficult thing Christians are called to believe. Harder by far than believing in miracles or prophecies, or that the God who made us has a right to tell us what to do with our bodies. I mean, that's her opinion. But, but the point's there. It's really hard to believe that God would send people to hell. 
But just because it's hard and unpopular does not mean it's not true. Jesus, the Lord of love, the author of grace, Jesus taught more about hell than all of the other biblical authors combined. That means it's really important. That means it's really important what Jesus says about hell. And it's something we ought to work really hard to understand. Not just dismiss it and push it out of our mind because it's unpleasant, but work to understand it and come to terms with it. So, let's just take a few moments and think on it together. In verse 41, Jesus describes hell as eternal fire. In chapter 5, verse 22 of this same gospel, Jesus speaks of the hell of fire. And the word for hell there is Gehenna, which was a real place. Gehenna was a valley outside of Jerusalem where piles of garbage were burned daily, along with the corpses of those whose families could not afford to bury them. In Mark 9, 43, Jesus speaks of, a, speaks of hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, the worm Jesus was talking about is referring to the maggots that live in the corpses on the garbage heap. When all the flesh is consumed, the maggot dies. Jesus is saying in that verse in Mark that the spiritual decomposition of hell never ends, which is why the worm doesn't die. In addition to fire, Jesus also refers to hell as a place of outer darkness. This he referenced in verse 30, at the end of the parable right before our text today, in verse 30, the place where the master casts the worthless servant was described as outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the language of fire gives us an idea of what hell will be like because we've all observed or even felt the pain of burning. We can relate to the weeping that Jesus says will be there. And we probably know something at least of pain that is so intense we have to grind our teeth. And we can relate to the terrifying isolation that comes from total pitch black darkness. But these descriptions of hell that Jesus gives I think, falls short of capturing its reality. I think we have every reason to believe that the reality of hell will be even worse than the image. And the reality to which these awful symbols point is separation from the presence of God and His blessings. We were created to live in fellowship with God. 
Hell is a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels, not mankind. Because man, man was always meant to be in God's presence. And even if one doesn't acknowledge God in this life, he is still the recipient of his kindness and care in countless ways. His life is still sustained by God. So even the atheist is benefiting from the God he denies. I think when we understand this, I think we have to conclude that there are no more horrific words anyone could ever hear than Jesus saying, depart from me. Simply being away from God is the worst possible thing that can happen to any person because it means the absence of that which provides any sense of coherence and any sense of meaning. Things like reasoning, feeling, choosing, giving or receiving love, all of those things are gone. God has given us over to what we've chosen. To go our own way. To be totally independent. Free from his control. It has been said that hell is God banishing us to regions we have desperately tried to get into all our lives. It's a prison in which the doors are first locked from the inside by us and therefore are locked from the outside by God. Pastor and author Tim Keller tells the story of a man who told him that all this talk about hell is fire and flames and outer darkness, the images Jesus used, he told Keller, that doesn't really bother me. It doesn't really affect me at all. Just seems rather far-fetched and Frankly, it's kind of silly. So, Keller read him some lines from C.S. Lewis in which Lewis describes a person's mind and soul collapsing in on himself and becoming only and completely the sin that he would not turn away from. The man got very quiet and said, Now that scares me. To death. He began to see that God removing his face in favor and letting him be was perfectly fair and perfectly just. And something that would happen if he didn't turn. Well, even though a lot of time has passed since Jesus ascended to heaven, we've seen very clearly in this text this morning that Jesus is coming back. The King is coming back. And he could come at any time. So we must be ready now. And when he returns, he will separate all people and judge in a way that is universal, perfectly just, 
and eternally binding. The deep longing for justice in the human heart and the fact that we just can't seem to attain it are both indicators that we need a judge. We need a judge who can judge perfectly and bring about the elusive justice that we long for. And even though we may not want this judge to be Jesus, he is the judge we need because he stepped off his throne and took the guilty verdict for us. In love, Jesus took our guilty verdict upon his guiltless body. On the cross, he bore the punishment for the sin we deserve in our place. And through the greatest injustice in the history of the universe, perfect justice was achieved as God's wrath for sin was satisfied through Christ's death on the cross. And since Jesus paid the penalty for sin, we don't have to. God offers full forgiveness, the perfect righteousness of Christ, and eternal life. Each one of our lives is going in one of two directions. Either independence from God, the life of the goat, or a life centered on God, like that of the sheep. And on Judgment Day, we will all receive what we choose. Either to be with God forever, which is life and joy, or to be without God forever, which is eternal torment and frightening isolation in the outer darkness and fire of hell. So if you are living a life independent from God, I urge you to allow this prophetic vision of your future destiny to arrest your attention and wake you up to the horrific reality of where you're headed. Please, don't ignore this warning. Respond today to the good news, really, really, really good news, that the path you're on can be changed. If you will but repent of your sin and trust in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, then on the day of judgment, you will hear from our righteous and holy judge, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this revelation. It's your kindness and mercy which gives us Jesus' words about what is coming and what will happen when he returns. And Father, we praise you for the grace of being one of your sheep. Father, there's nothing in us that deserves it. It is you 
who has granted us this grace. Father, thank you for the inheritance that you promise us through Christ, that you prepared for us before we were even born. Father, we praise you for this. As we strive to wait for the return of the King, may we love others. May our lives be marked by doing all we can to meet the needs of those who have less, who are in need, who are suffering and struggling. Father, may the world see the genuineness of our faith by the way in which we love one another. And Father, for those who are here this morning, who would be on the left, who are in the category of the goat, Father, cause them to see where the path they're on is headed. Cause them to see the horrific reality of life apart from your presence. Father, we pray that you would draw them to Christ, grant them faith, help them, Lord, to know through your kindness and mercy of the blessing of the Father. We ask all these things through Christ. Amen.